Well, welcome back to the Reading and Writing Podcast. My guest today is Scott Brick, a prolific and award-winning audiobook narrator. If you're a fan of audiobook books, you've most likely heard a Scott Brick narrated audiobook. The list of authors that Scott has recorded audiobooks of is literally a who's who of modern fiction. Tom Clancy, T.C. Boyle, Isaac Isimov, Arthur C. Clarke, George R.R. R. Martin, and many, many more. Held by Audible in 2012 as their most prolific narrator, Brick has narrated almost 900 audiobooks. To date, he's won over 60 Earphones Awards for his narrating skills, as well as five Audi Awards, five Sova's Awards for voiceover, and a Grammy nomination for the multicast recording of The Mark of Zorro in 2011. Brick has also narrated the audiobooks of several Dune novels by Frank Herbert, as well as the recent Dune novels written by Herbert's son, Brian Herbert, and science fiction author Kevin J. Anderson. The latest movie adaptation of Dune will be in movie theaters worldwide in a few weeks. Scott Brick, welcome to the podcast. Uh, Jeff, it is always a privilege to get to talk about books, but especially when I get to talk about Dune. Uh, I am in heaven. So thank you for having me here today. Well, great. Well, before we talk about Dune, I just wanted to ask you a few questions. Can you talk about your own journey as one of the most popular audiobook narrators working today? What led you to recording your first audiobook? You know, I tell you, I've got a, a, a funny story, and it actually just happened within the last couple of days. Um, uh, the the fact of the matter is, I um, I got into audiobooks. Over 20 years ago, it was um, my very first audiobook recording gig was on June 10th of 1999. I know that because I wrote it down for tax purposes and uh, the date stuck. And so every year on that anniversary, I celebrate the fact that I'm still here and, and have the privilege of doing what I do. Um, but um, the reason I got into it, the reason I pursued it is because I love old time radio. I love the broadcasts that were done in starting in the late twenties and really going through the late fifties, early sixties. And, um, years ago, audible.com, uh, they reached out to a number of narrators, myself included. And they said, tell us what, what it's like for you during the holidays. Uh, tell us about some of your traditions. Maybe tell us how you got into the industry. And I just said, well, look, I got into this because of the Jack Benny show. I mean, that was my favorite show of all time. My favorite comedian of all time. Um, and I, I tell you what, about two weeks ago, Jack Benny's granddaughter heard that, uh, heard that audiobook, and she got a touch through my website and I met her two days ago and she gave me a bunch of photos of her grandfather in the studio. Um, but yeah, really that's, that's what it, that's what it boils down to for me. It's oral storytelling. It is a long and proud and storied tradition. Um, it's how story has always been passed down from one generation to the next. And, uh, I, I loved it when it was the norm. Um, you know, when it was broadcast radio, uh, I love it now, uh, when it's more podcasts and audiobooks. So, uh, uh telling stories aloud, whatever form it's in, you can bet I'm going to be on board. That's great. Well, given the number of audiobooks that you narrate, do you have a home studio that you use for recording? I do, but I'll tell you what, to be honest, to be perfectly honest, I don't like working here. Um, <laughs> uh, of course, this is, we're living in a pandemic, right? You know, we're living right. in the age of germ warfare. 
Um, so I don't have a choice right now, but, uh, people used to ask me all the time. They would say, oh, if you have a home studio, you must love that. And I would say, no, I really don't. Uh, I like going out and, and meeting other people. I get cabin fever really easily. And when I go to a, a, a lot of the major publishers have studios that have, you know, multiple studios in the same building. And as such, you'll bump into, I'll bump into colleagues of mine, you know, gosh, Ray Porter and John Lee and Katie Kelgren, bless her soul. She left a few years ago. Um, uh, uh, Kate Amazer, Barbara Rosenblatt, you bump into them in the studio and you get to talk about what has been exciting you. You know, oh my God, you won't believe this book I'm doing on the great influenza, the Spanish flu from a hundred years ago, which has really <laughs> been an eye opener, um, since the days of COVID began. Um, but, uh, you know, I, when I'm working on a, on a, on a really good book, I want to tell people about it. And when I'm working on a, <laughs> a, I won't say that there are any bad books. Of course there are, but there, when there are books that I'm working on that are not my favorites, I want to complain about it. <laughs> so, uh, having others there, it's, uh, it's, it's a lot of fun. So what does your daily schedule look like? How much are you actually recording? Um, so most narrators operate from a standpoint of, uh, PFH per finished hour. Um, and what that means is, um, you know, I may spend six hours in the studio, uh, but I'll likely that will only likely result in three finished hours. So once they've been edited down, right. Um, the six hours turn into three, or if I spend eight hours in the studio, maybe I can get, you know, close to four hours done. Um, that's always the goal. I I'm always aiming for about three finished hours a day. I typically, I wake up, uh, often far earlier than I want to. Um, um, you know, seven thirty, eight o'clock. Um, I usually have a start time of about 10 AM. I'll spend that time in the kitchen, brewing up some tea, just kind of getting my my blood working. Maybe I go for a, a, a walk. Maybe I get on the treadmill. I sit in the sauna, whatever it is, um, just to get myself into gear and to hydrate as much as I can. Um, it's, hydration is the most important thing for a voice actor. So I need to make sure that I'm consuming a, a couple of pints of water uh, before my sessions begin so that I'll be okay by the end of the day, uh, as I am at the beginning. So, um, yeah. And then I, then I start recording and I take breaks for when I get tired, when I just need to get a, a bit more caffeine, what have you grab some lunch, keep my stomach from growling. Uh, that's a really bad word. Uh, that's a nightmare for an, an audiobook narrator, uh, are the stomach <laughs> rumbles. Um, and what's really funny is there's a trash, uh, a, a trash truck picking up my, my, uh, my recycling right outside my door here. And it's like, well, yeah, I have to work around that too. Right. Because the, you know, the vibrations, uh, that go through your walls, like they get picked up on the microphone. So, um, sometimes like, like now, uh, for the last few minutes when this truck has been going up and down my street, well, that's kind of an opposed break. And I, and I kind of look at it like, oh. That's just God's way of staying anonymous. That's, uh, you know, it's, it's tough for you to take a break, Scott. Okay, great. Off we go. What's next? So, uh, just a, another question about the process. Uh, 
Are you doing your own editing? How does that work exactly? Or do you have an editor or producer that you're sending raw audio to? Yeah, I, um, it depends on whether I'm working for a publisher or working directly for an author, because that happens a lot more nowadays. Gotcha. Um, working with the, uh, self-published authors. Um, if I'm working with, uh, a publisher later today, I'm going to do something for Macmillan. It was actually the, the publisher of the Dune audiobooks. We're working on a project, um, this week, the, um, the Orphan X series by, uh, by Greg Hurwitz. And what I will do is I just, I get on a, I start a session file in my booth and they log on from back East in New York. I live in Los Angeles. They live in New York. So they put in later workday than me. Um, there are programs that you could use like, um, well, sometimes you're just doing zoom and I will essentially, um, in zoom, you can share your screen with somebody, but you can also allow them to run your, your desktop for you. And so I just hand over control, say, okay, off you go, do whatever you need to do. And then at the end of the day, I send them the audio and they handle all the editing. Well, when I'm working directly for, um, an author, I'm doing a lot of that work myself, but I, I, I just, I basically hit roll. I hit the button that starts, that starts the, uh, the microphone rolling. And then I don't touch it for a couple of hours and I send off, I send off the audio to, um, um, to an editor that I hire. What I do then though, is I, I do something different. I have a tally clicker, you know, there's those little handheld metal things. Uh, you see people, you know, counting as you go through turnstiles. Okay. Click, <laughs> click, 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 click. You know, they can keep track of the gate numbers. Sure. I use that because the sound, the click sound makes a spike in, in the recording software. And so I do that to alert the editor, uh, to know when I've made a mistake so that he, he or she can then more easily go in and clean it up. Wow. That's interesting. Well, yeah. let, let's talk about Dune. The latest movie adaptation of Dune will be in theaters in a few weeks. Um, so far, early reviews are just stellar. Uh, yeah. I'm curious, given your work on, on so many Dune audiobooks, why do you think Dune is so popular? You know, I've thought a lot about that over these last 20 years, 20 years since I've been working on this, uh, on this, um, series now. Um, I think what's so popular, what makes people keep returning to it again and again, and you have to, you have to realize that nobody would publish this, this book, um, um, back in the, it's, it's changed publishers a few times since then, but the very first person was Chilton. Who, if anybody remembers, they, they, for many years did, um, automotive manuals. <laughs> they didn't do fiction, but the publisher at Chilton was at the time, the first person to say, yeah, I have faith in this. And then of course, you know, the major publisher stepped in, they, they had been looking at it too, but it's just Chilton beat them to the punch. So anyway, they wound up buying it, um, away from Chilton, the Chilton and, um, it's. I think the reason that people, that it clicked with people is that Frank understood that some things never change, right? Um, Frank was on the forefront of life as a, uh, an environmentalist. He wrote, he wrote a book in the 1950s, um, um, dragon in the deep, 
uh, about an oil shortage. This was 1956. There was no oil shortage on the horizon. Well, fast forward 15 years and the, and OPEC gets involved and suddenly there's a, there's a crisis and, um, and we're rationing here in the United States, um, rationing gasoline. Uh, Frank saw that coming and he knew that the environment needed to be protected. And so he came up with this idea that, you know, what happens when a planet turns entirely to land, to, to sand, to desert sand, and there are no oceans anywhere. Um, I think people appreciate the fact that he was so forward thinking about that, but primarily I think they, what they appreciate is that he understood again, some things never change. Um, he in, in, envisioned this world where, um, thousands of years in the future, instead of having a planet with a lot of different countries, instead you had an imperium as they call it, uh, in Dune or the galactic empire, essentially. And each of those planets has been colonized by a different group from earth, right? So what would happen? If today we were, we here in America colonized a planet and people in Russia colonized a planet and Europe colonized a planet and China colonized a planet and wouldn't our same antagonisms and, and biases and, and, um, um, alliances, wouldn't that transfer into the future among different planets rather than just the countries? That's essentially what he did. The, the planet that Dune takes place on, the actual name of it is called Arrakis. And in, in, in the fiction of the Dune universe, you know, thousands of years from now, there were, um, Arabic slaves. They were taken captive from earth and taken to this other world where they were, you know, enforced, you know, forced into slavery. And then they escaped. And they fled as far away as they could. They fled so far that they knew nobody would ever chase them. And they landed on this planet called Arrakis. And so they created what, uh, essentially an Arabic culture, but the language anyway is, is, is Arabic. Um, a lot of the pronunciation work that we do on the series, we, uh, we base them, uh, these words on, on Arabic pronunciations. As a matter of fact, there are two factions on the planet, uh, the Zen Sunnis and the Zen Shiite. Uh, you know, again, the more things change. Um, I think people could really appreciate that because I think what's most important in, in science fiction is that you were able to recognize yourself in the story, right? Um, Luke Skywalker, he wants to go out and join the rebellion, but he has family commitments on the farm at home. And he doesn't want to leave his aunt and uncle in the lurch. Well, then the rebellion comes to his planet and they're gone. And he's like, yep, okay, time to go. I think a lot of people can recognize themselves. Certainly the era that uh, Star Wars came out, people remembered feeling that way in World War II. The people who were viewing it in 1977 remembered when they felt that way in 1944. Yeah, I want to go help America. Um you know, fight the Axis powers, but my family needs me. So it, it, science fiction may be, you know, uh, uh, populated with space battles and monsters. And certainly in this case, there are 
sandworms, which are extraordinary, unendingly fascinating in the Dune universe. Um, they have so much to do with the, uh, the ecosystem of the planet. Um, even though there are monsters and aliens and uh, distant planets and space battles, what science fiction at its best is really about, and specifically what Dune is really about, is family. That's you know, great. Look at look at the the one of the greatest stories I'm ever told. Curious, can you give us a crash course in pronouncing words in Dune? What's the correct way to say Atreides? Oh, I'd be happy to do that. And well done, you. You nailed it on the first try. It is Atreides. <laughs> Paul and Leto Atreides. Um, uh, where that came from, Frank Herbert based them off of Greek mythology, the House of Atreus. Uh, which uh, one of its most famous members in Greek mythology was King, Agam King Agamemnon. And he thought, wouldn't it be interesting if there was a descendant of the most ancient kings on earth, you know, who were still noblemen in the far-flung future. So yeah, it is the House of Atreides. That's and cool. before you ask, I, 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 uh, I, I know a lot of fans out there are wondering uh, how to pronounce their mortal enemies. It is Harkonnen. Even though the David Lynch version 30 years ago uh, got it so wildly wrong, they said Harkonnen, <laughs> which blows me away because Frank Herbert was still alive at the time and he was their technical advisor and he told David Lynch how to say it right and Lynch just didn't care. Uh, uh, or whomever, somebody made the, the executive decision. And I still, that still trips me up today when I have to say the Harkonnen's name just because, you know, that was when I first started reading the books and I had heard Harkonnen in my head, I'd still stumble over it, but it is in fact Harkonnen. <laughs> That's good to know. Well, I'm curious, do you read a novel manuscript before you sit down to do a narration? I do. You really kind of need to, um, no matter the genre. Um, sometimes you can get away with not doing it. Uh, let's say if it's a, like if it's a nonfiction story, uh, yeah, you can kind of figure out what happens at the end. Right. Um, uh, I know how history turned out, <laughs> but, um, if it is a thriller, if it's a whodunit specifically, you need to know who done it. You just do. Um, it, it tells you how to perform it. Sure. Um, there are characters, the, there's the, there's the real killer, but the author wants to be a surprise when it's discovered, but then there's the red herring character that the author doesn't want you to think in a million years could be the killer. Well, <coughs> beg your pardon. Mm -hmm. um, when I know who the red herring character is, what I do is I make them. With everything you have on your plate, earning your degree online seems impossible. But at Grand Canyon University, we specialize in helping you fit a master's degree in business into your busy day. Your graduation team, led by your own GCU counselor, provides you with the personal support you need to succeed. Achieve your goals with a plan and team behind you. Find your purpose at Grand Canyon University. Visit gcu.edu. From a performance standpoint, I make them as unpleasant as I can get away with without getting caught. But if I'm then working with the actual killer, I make them as mild as mother's milk so that when the time comes and they're revealed as the actual killer, you'll have that kind of ending of the sixth sense movie where all <laughs> right. of a sudden people went, oh, oh no, seriously? <laughs> That's great. It's, 
it's much the same thing in what we do. Well, we've talked about Dune, and as I mentioned at the uh, very top of the interview, I listed a, all of, many of the authors that you have um, narrated. I'm curious, in the last year, uh, what has been the one or two books that you've worked on that you're most excited about? Well, I'll tell you what, um, um, there's three of them. Uh, I'll, I'll, I'll go through them as quickly as I can. Two of them are nonfiction. One of them is the series that I'm working on for Macmillan Audio right now, which is the, um, the Orphan X series. Uh, I believe it's called uh, Dark Horse. Um, it's book seven in the Orphan X series by Greg Hurwitz. Um, they are brilliant. They are, every day I get to work on one of those is like a paid vacation. Please don't tell Macmillan Audio that, that I would do it for free. <laughs> I prefer it when they actually pay me. Um, but uh, um, those are as good as any thrillers being written today, as any series. Um, and I'm currently working on that. I'm gonna, um, uh, when we're done here, I'm going to head back into the booth and, and do a little bit more. Um, I did two other nonfiction books. I did um, um, The Making of Casablanca by Algene Harmetz. Um, it's my favorite film of all time, like everybody else in the known universe, uh, and getting to delve into what was really going on, you know, there's that wonderful scene where, um, um, the Germans are singing, uh, um, uh, Deutschland über Alice and Victor Laszlo gets the French band to play over them and to drown them out by, uh, singing, uh, uh, Le Marseillaise. And, um, there's a chapter in the book about how basically everybody on that set that day was a Jewish immigrant from various European nations. And, you know, the book isn't about Judaism or, or, or any other religion, but there were so many people, um, from that background that were working on the, on the, on that movie that when they called cut, uh, one of the actors turned around in surprise because he realized all he heard was sobbing. People got done sing, you know, doing that scene and they sobbed because it meant so much to them. I love knowing stories like that. You know, it means the world to me. Um, the last one I'll mention, uh, I don't want to monopolize your time, but um, we just did a book, nonfiction book about Dune, uh, a book, a, a biography of Frank Herbert, the man who wrote Dune, the man who created this whole franchise. It's called Dreamer of Dune, and it was lovingly written by his son, Brian about 20 years ago, but it never got done on audio. So I spoke with Macmillan, Macmillan Audio, and I wound up getting the rights to it. And we just got done narrating it and we're putting it out. Fingers crossed it debuts in time for the film. Uh, but if not, it will be available very soon thereafter. And I hope people uh, listen to that one because um, Frank Herbert and Beverly Herbert, his wife, they both had so much impact on what we're going to see in the movie theater in 10 days or two weeks from now, uh, that I, I really hope people, uh, listen, that they enjoy that they appreciate the story. That's great. Well, again, we've been speaking with Scott Brick, a prolific and award-winning audiobook narrator. You can check out his work at his website, www.scottbrick.net. And if you haven't listened to one of his narrations before search on your favorite audiobook website and take a listen. And Scott, Thanks for doing this interview. It is an absolute privilege getting to talk about audiobooks is the best part of my day. And uh, uh, specifically getting to talk about uh, Dune is uh, uh, it's an honor. So thank you, Jeff. I appreciate you having me.
Thanks a lot. And now to give you a sense of Scott Brick's audiobook narration skills, stay tuned for the first chapter of the brand new Dune audiobook, Dune the Lady of Caledon, by Brian Herbert and Kevin J. Anderson. And of course, Scott Brick narrating. The Kwisatz Haderach breeding program was designed to benefit humanity. But at what cost? At what human cost? Lady Jessica, Private Journals In her mind and heart, Jessica found herself at the bottom of an abyss. Each moment took her farther from Caladan, Duke Leto, and Paul. After receiving the Bene Gesserit ultimatum and the threat against her family, Jessica had crossed star systems in the Spacing Guild Highliner, ordered back to Wallach Nine like a recalcitrant child. She felt no warm homecoming as she rode a shuttle down from the huge orbiting ship to the Sisterhood's dreary, cold homeworld. Would she ever see Caladan again? Or Leto? Or Paul? She shifted her position on the hard seat of the shuttle. Maybe the answer to that question depended on what Mother Superior Harishka wanted from her. Exceptionally strong side winds buffeted the vessel, which made the pilot change his descent and swoop around, rising higher until the turbulence abated. Other passengers muttered a drone of unease, but Jessica remained silent. She had her own turbulence to deal with. As she looked out the diamond-shaped window port, the roiling clouds mirrored her troubled mind. She resented the iron control that the sisterhood exerted over her. She had been separate from them many years, imagining herself independent on Caladan. But they had cracked the whip. The Bene Gesserit summons had left no room for discussion. Reverend Mother Mohayim had threatened to destroy the Duke and the future of House Atreides if she didn't obey and the sisterhood certainly had the means to do so. They wanted Jessica for their own purposes, had withdrawn her, permanently, from Caladan. Never in her life had she felt so dismal, separated from everyone and everything she loved. But she did not intend to meekly comply. The shuttle rocked again in the unsettled air and began to descend again after circumventing the storm, and Jessica saw they were approaching the mother school complex below. Through a veil of tangled clouds, she made out the ancient buildings and new annexes, the angles of red-tiled roofs, the low underbrush that covered the grounds. The foliage had turned a bright scarlet and orange with autumn colors. The structures were connected, like the countless women in the sisterhood, all part of an intricate and powerful political machine. Jessica had been raised here from infancy, parentless, and the sisterhood had raised her, indoctrinated her, and enfolded her life from birth until her inevitable death. The Bene Gesserit owned her. Using some of the very methods taught to her at the mother school, Jessica concentrated on a breathing exercise that brought clarity and calm. She felt her muscles relax. She had to be at her best and sharpest to face whatever came next. As she centered herself, the turbulence around the shuttle smoothed and the remaining clouds parted over the landing zone on the perimeter of the complex. Still wearing garments from Caladan, 
Jessica felt out of place, but soon they would make her change into the school's traditional dark garb to remind her that she was still one of them. Always one of them. Wallach Nine, with its weak sun and chill climate, had long been a place where young women of the order either rose to the challenges or failed. Jessica felt an odd nostalgia for the ancient training center, torn by her loyalties to the sisterhood and her family. She had spent so many years here, soft clay for them to shape as they chose, finally assigning her as the bound concubine of a young duke with great potential. And now she was back. She felt a deep sense of foreboding. Mother Superior Harishka greeted her in person on the tarmac. The Mother Superior had piercing eyes and a severe, uncompromising demeanor. Despite her age, the old woman's skin was remarkably tight and smooth, possibly from the geriatric effects of the melange she consumed regularly. She had filled the same role for decades after a lifetime of service to the Order. Come with me. You are needed immediately. She didn't explain about the urgent matter that had turned Jessica's life upside down. Despite her advanced years, Harishka set a brisk pace, moving like a military commander leading a charge against enemy lines. They entered a large new administration building that had been built with a generous donation from old Viscount Alfred Tull, whose name was on a plaque by the entrance. I want you to see this first before you attempt to settle in. We may not have much time, Harishka said. You need to know the reason you are here and why it is so important. Yes, she thought. I need to know that. As Jessica followed her up wide stairs and down long corridors, she absorbed peripheral details, but did not ask questions, though a desperate curiosity clamored inside. In an isolated section of the third floor, Harishka led her to a viewing window that looked into a large medical chamber with a closed door. Two other sisters remained there, outside the plans like guardians, but Jessica stepped up to the window, determined to see. Harishka explained, the room is sealed and barricaded, but do not underestimate the danger. This is clear armored plans, and she can see us now if she is alert enough. But for our protection, we can always set it to one-way plans, if necessary. With all the precautions taken, Jessica expected to see some kind of caged monster inside. Instead, she saw an ancient woman stretched on a bed, tossing restlessly in her sleep. She wore only a medical gown, with tubes and monitors connected to her. Her face was drawn back in a grimace, and she cried out, but the thick plans blocked all sound. Despite the wrinkles on her age-spotted neck, arms, and hands, her face was not nearly as shriveled as her body. Jessica didn't understand. She is the danger? What does this have to do with me? The Mother Superior gave an oblique answer. This is Lithia, a former Quisot's mother. Now she serves in a different capacity for as long as she remains alive, and for as long as she withholds what we need. Quisot's mother, 
Jessica remembered Shaddam Carino's first wife, Anna Rule, who had been present during Paul's birth, who had been greatly interested in the boy child. Anna Rule had been a Bene Gesserit of hidden rank, while quietly holding the while quietly holding an important secret title. She had died very shortly after Paul was born. And what does a Cuisat's mother do? Jessica asked. And why did she have the power to summon me? Like a guild navigator foreseeing safe pathways throughout the stars, so a Cuisat's mother can see each thread in the immense tapestry of our breeding plans. Lethea was relieved of duty due to mental instability. She is still useful, even if she is dangerous. Jessica couldn't tear her gaze from the crone writhing on the medical bed, locked away alone. Lethea seemed barely able to move. Dangerous? Hrishka stared ahead, as if her gaze could bore through the barrier. She has already murdered several of us, hence the need for all the security. The mother superior nodded to one of the two women stationed there to watch Lethea. She was in her thirties, with black hair and an olive complexion. Sister Giara has watched Lithia closely, but I'm afraid she has few answers. Giara looked through the plans. Her mind is crumbling, but it is still incredibly powerful. She paused just a beat. Enough to kill several sisters through her sheer force of will. As if sensing their presence, Lethea's eyes opened to narrow slits, and she stared directly at Jessica from the other side of the armored room. Jessica shuddered. Why do you need her? she asked the mother superior. What is so important? Lethea has a special prescience the sisterhood needs, a predictive ability about the future of our order. It is proven to be accurate and valuable to us, enabling us to make calculated decisions. That is why we keep her alive, despite the danger. But her mental gift comes and goes, and Lethea is losing control of it. She is out of her mind, Chiara added, sounding bitter. But she insisted that we bring you here. Jessica had so many questions that she could no longer contain them. What does this have to do with me? I've never met this Kwisat's mother. Arishka turned toward Jessica and said, You are here because Lithia said bring her here. Our future depends on it. And she insisted that you be separated from your son. According to her, you could bring about the end of the sisterhood. Jessica felt as if she had fallen off a ledge. Separate me from Paul? This made absolutely no sense at all. Why? For what purpose? Harishka's expression fell. We need you to discover the answer. She predicted horror, bloodshed, disaster. That's why we called you here so urgently. Behind the plan's wall, Lethea's gaze held on Jessica, then shifted to glare at Mother Superior Harishka, Giara, and the other sister. Finally, the old woman closed her eyes and sagged like a rag onto the medical bed. She's a crafty one, Chiara whispered. Look at her. 
She wants to kill more of us, if given the chance. Is she really asleep at last? The other sister asked. Arishka touched a button on the wall, and with a quiet hiss, the door to the medical room opened. She called for three medical sisters, who rushed down the hall. Attend to her now, quickly, while you can. The trio hurried in, rolling a machine, and hooked it to the old woman, adding tubes and lines, but trying not to disturb her. Two of the sisters took readings, while the third remained alert, as if ready for an attack. Intravenous feeder, Harishka explained to Jessica. Lithia refuses to eat on her own. We keep her alive, no matter how much she objects, and we expect you to pry answers from her. The two women worked quickly, but as they were unhooking the feeding tube, the patient stirred. Alarmed, the medical sisters abandoned the feeding machine and bolted for the door. Lithea snapped fully awake and called out in a strange way, Stop! Jessica recognized the irresistible power of voice. Was this how she killed? Two sisters had made it through the door, but the third, the one who had been guarding them, jerked to a sudden stop. Terrified, she struggled, but could not move, as if snagged by a lasso. Her companions turned and grabbed her, dragging her out into the corridor, then slammed the door behind them. Thrashing on her medical bed, Lathea glowered at the window. We have to send in teams of three, Harishka said. She only seems able to control the mind of one sister at a time, and this way, the other two can stop a victim from killing herself. It's a game to her said Giara, seeing if she can catch one of us alone. Lathea shot a hostile, terrifying gaze through the window at Jessica. But Jessica refused to turn away, meeting the stare with her own. Is that why Lathea demanded to see me? Because she wants to kill me? It is possible, the mother superior said. Very possible. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile, and the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time, there's Granger, offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, click Granger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.